The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, I will cut right to the chase. This is one of the strangest poems I have ever read. It's disturbing, yet fascinating, bewitching, compelling, unforgettable. Choose your adjective and choose your analysis. But don't worry, you kind of can't be wrong unless you insist that your analysis is comprehensive and exhaustive. There is no correct answer, or rather, there is no single correct answer. This poem has defied interpretation and will continue to do so as long as people care about poetry. Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I will confess that this was not on the schedule. I pulled this book off the shelf. I've been pulling a lot of books off the shelf. I bought that shelf full of little penguin books. You know those? The little black ones? A full set of those. I got one year for Christmas, and by bought, I mean I paid for them and told my family that they were giving it to me for Christmas so I would have a present along with everyone else. (laughs) And then I wrapped it up with a tag that said, To Dad from Santa. And then this thing, it's a little hard to get the books out until you take a couple out. It it sat on my shelf for a while. I would Sometimes I would pry one out and put them in my coat pocket. These are little books, thin. They cost a pound in England and two bucks in the States if you buy them individually. I got a volume discount. There are no prefaces, no author bios, no commentary. Just some straight literature. A little shot of literature, like a shot of something golden and warm that I love to drink when I am in Scotland. Why beat around the bush? It's called whiskey. And it's a godly drink on a rainy day. You can get it in the States, too. (laughs) Of course. These little penguin books. Penguin, when are you going to get around to sponsoring the History of Literature podcast? I talk about you all the time for free. I feel like a spurned lover. Anyway, these little penguin books are also like a godly drink. Firewater for the soul. They go down sharp. They go down smooth. They warm the blood and ease the mind, setting things inside me aflame. The dancing flame is a good metaphor for today, as we will see. So, I have a big schedule, a calendar with all these episodes planned out. More Whitman on the way, more Kierkegaard, still have lots to do, plenty of interviews already recorded, lined up, ready to go, and then blammo. I pull out one of these little black beauties and it transports me. It shocks my system. 
I sat in my little black car in a lonely parking lot waiting for someone to emerge from a building, my timeless wait, listening to the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. Well, I have my little idiosyncrasies, and that is one. I come and go on the Beatles. You can't live on the Beatles alone, but when the mood is right, that is a great channel. Michael McKean on Memorial Day weekend doing the top 100. Sign me up. And I'm reading this poem, Goblin Market and Blammo. Blammo. Man, did this poem hit me hard. Here's why, I think. Look, I've been doing this a long time. Reading analyzing, interpreting, judging, comprehending, absorbing, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call whatever I do with literature, I might not be the best at it or even very good at it. But I'll say this for myself, I'm not new to it. I've been doing it with a lot of books for a long time. It's rare that I read a great work of literature these days and have it Seize me by the throat like this one did. Reminded me of how I used to read when things were kind of a mystery to me. I didn't have an immediate frame of reference. I didn't have a, an immediate answer. I didn't think, ah, yes, here's how this little piece fits into the larger puzzle. Here's the shape and the colors. I know where it goes and what it does. How nice, how satisfying. Snap. I like this puzzle and I like putting it together. This was like the old days. This was like, whoa, what's this? First time I ever read Pale Fire. What is this? Ulysses? Come on. What is this? I can't even tell what these colors are. What is this picture going to be? I can't get my mind around the shape. This piece might be from a different puzzle altogether. I might need to stare at this for a while before I can figure it out, if I ever will. And all that sounds cerebral, but it was more than that. It was like the first time I read Lolita or the first time I read Keats or Shakespeare at an even younger age. It was like, it was like saying, this makes me feel a certain way. This is pulling me in different directions, and I'm not sure what that even means. This poem was doing that to me. These are conflicting feelings I'm having. This is operating on me at several different levels all at once. Christina Rossetti. Man, I've read her poems before, but not this one. Somehow I missed it. I thought I had the gist of Rossetti, but no, no, no. If I ever read this, I do not remember it. And unlike most literature... I read it with a kind of scholarly detachment. The podcaster's perch above the fray, well, this one pulled me right into the fray. Like those demons at the bottom of Michelangelo's judgment painting, grabbing souls by the ankles and pulling them into the dark, hot soup. That's what these goblins in this market did to me. We can thank Christina's brother, Dante Gabriel, the painter and the poet, for the amazing title, Goblin Market. He was a, a great champion of hers. He believed Christina to be the finest poet around and definitely a kind of elevated, transcendent poet, as she was. But he was smart enough and artistic enough to change the title from A Peep at the Goblins, which was her original title, to Goblin Market. Hmm. 
That has to be the best title change this side of Fitzgerald changing the name of his novel, The High Bouncing Lover, to The Great Gatsby. So what I want to do with this is to invert our usual course of business here. Ordinarily, I give you the author, the biography, and so on, all the context you need, hopefully. And then I deliver the goods, the main course, the best works. In this case, I'm going to start with the poem, Goblin Market. I'll give you the very briefest of backgrounds, and then we'll read the poem in all of its bizarre and confounding glory. Confounding, but also completely irresistible glory. And yes, it is glorious, though it's also dark and disturbing too. And then in our next episode, or in a subsequent episode, We'll follow up with everything worth saying about Christina Rossetti and the pre-Raphaelites who surrounded her, even though she wasn't quite one. And we will try to figure out how this person wrote this poem, what it means that she did, and what people have tried to do to figure out just who she was, this goblin market writer. How brief can we be with our introduction here? Christina Rossetti, the poem is kind of long, so we got to get, we got to make time for that. Christina Rossetti was a Victorian poet born in London in 1830 and dying 64 years later, also in London in 1894. Her family was an incredible literary family. We'll go into all of that next time. She was a devout Christian. She wrote devotional poems and poems for children. She was engaged twice, but never married. I think she had three relationships. We'll talk about that, too. She's often lumped in with a group called the Pre-Raphaelites, which included her brother Dante Gabriel, and she's often linked either by comparison or contrast to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was a slightly older contemporary. But truly, Christina Rossetti's poetry is unlike anyone else's. Okay, I think that's enough for now. Like I said, we're starting with Goblin Market. We'll have a little more about Christina Rossetti along the way. But we are going to dive right into the poem. Warning you now, it is wild and strange. We're going to celebrate it, analyze it, and then we'll fill in the context around it and the interpretations of it later. Hang on to your hats, people. Fasten those bonnets. I've double-knotted mine, Goblin Market, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week. Whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry, Come buy our orchard fruits, come buy, come buy, Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, Plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, Bloom-down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, Wild free-born cranberries, Crab apples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather. Morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly, come by, come by. Okay, that's the beginning of the poem. Some goblins calling out to maids morning and evening. You start to think the poet is maybe getting a little carried away with the fruits, right? We're barely into this poem, and it's dominated by all these examples of fruit. What do we have, a dozen? Sixteen? And guess what? We're not done. Back to the poem. Our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates full and fine, dates and sharp bullaces, rare pears and green gauges, damsons and bilberries, taste them and try. Currants and gooseberries, bright fire-like barberries, figs to fill your mouth, citrons from the south, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, come by, come by. What is going on here? The goblins want people, these maids in particular, want them to sample these fruits. They've got it all. 
What do we get from this catalog of fruits? It's kind of exotic and seemingly forbidden. If these were plain, unadorned fruits, apples, bananas, strawberries, the stuff we eat for subsistence, this would not be so tempting, right? And they wouldn't be urging so much. Citrons from the south, bright fire-like barberries, figs to fill your rare pears. Some of these fruits I haven't even heard of. They sound exotic. But what is going on? Why do goblins want to sell the maids these fruits? Where are the men? Aren't they buying anything? Well, of course, first thing that jumps to mind, at least to my mind, goblins tempting a woman to eat fruit sounds an awful lot like Eve being pitched by the snake, right? Try this. Eat this. Don't ask too many questions. Come on, come on, come on. Do it, do it, do it. <laughs> come by, come by, come by. And the second thing this brings to mind is drugs. Based on what we know of the 19th century England society, it could be tea and caffeine, but that's kind of laughable. More likely we're in the world of opium, right? An exotic substance that goblins are eager to get us to try because once you do, you're hooked and all your money will go to them. But why wouldn't they try to sell that to men as well? Why just these maids? Are the goblins men who are trying to tempt women? That brings up a third potential analogy here. Men who say, try this, try this. Maybe it's sex that they're offering. Maybe men are like Eve's Satan, saying, oh, we've got some goodies for you. You'll feel good. Whether that's physical pleasure or the self-esteem boost of feeling wanted by men. But we're all snakes at heart, aren't we? We're goblins, but we've got something tempting here. So what do we have? Sex or drugs or just generalized sin? The fruit of the tree of knowledge, something very dangerous in this fruit. That's how it feels. Something ominous going on here. Back to the poem. Evening by evening among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear. Lizzie veiled her blushes. Crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips, Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, call the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Let's pause there. The rhyme scheme is all over the place. You get lips and tips in a couplet. You get said and head back to back. Then, men, Glenn, here's what the rhyme scheme is from that little section that I just read. A, B, C, B, D, D, E, E, F, F, G, H, F, H, I, G. Unpredictable. Right? Rhymes popping up here and there. And what do we have going on? Lizzie and Laura crouching close. Who are they? Who knows what soil these fruits came from? 
What kind of soil would that be? Is there a patch of sinful soil somewhere? Poisoned fruit from poisoned trees, from poisoned soils? Hmm. Seems like it must be a metaphor. We're in the presence of evil, somehow, it would seem. And these two, Lizzie and Laura, are in a kind of embrace. Clasping arms, cautioning lips, tingling cheeks and fingertips. I've had sexual relationships that did not feel that intimate. Back to the poem. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow, whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, 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 their offers should not charm us, their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes, and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail, one like a wombat prowled obtuse and furry, one like a rattle, rattle, R-A-T-E-L, that's what we call a honey badger, one like a rattle, tumbled hurry-scurry. She heard a voice like voice of doves cooing all together. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Okay, here we go. Now we really see the divergence between these two. Lizzie is cautious. Laura's definitely more tempted. But what are these goblins? Now we see them through Laura's eyes. Are they cute, disgusting, villainous, friendly, some combination of the above? In Laura's point of view, anyway, they sound like doves cooing all together, kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Not a horrible screech, not a, not grunts and guttural sounds as we might expect expect from goblins, but doves cooing all together. It's so seductive, this song they're singing to Laura. Rossetti spent a lot of time outdoors when she was young on her grandfather's country estate. She really gets nature. Of course, her uncle was John Polidori, Byron's doctor, who also wrote, famous for writing a story called The Vampire. The first vampire story, one of the first anyway, was before Dracula. Vampire when it was spelled with a Y instead of an I. That's how long ago it was. Over 200 years ago now. So, the nature that Rossetti got was nature with some teeth, or fangs, as the case may be. What's Laura up to? How is she taking all this in? Back to the poem. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Ooh, those are good lines. My goodness, this is getting downright sexual, isn't it? 
something pent up here. Is that just me? Gleaming neck like a swan bursting forth. This is what is what's the Rogers and Hammerstein line? June is busting out all over. I know it's about a calendar month and springtime in that musical, but I never fail to think of bosoms when I hear that line, June, and her cleavage in a low-cut blouse, which I suspect was something they were trying to make me think of. This vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. What does that connotate to you? This is, to me, it's that moment when you've had a few drinks, your inhibitions are gone, and you start to think, all right, screw it, I'm in. What vice do you want to indulge? What do you got? As Brando might say. Okay, back to the poem. Backwards up the mossy glen turned and trooped the goblin men with their shrill repeated cry, Come by, come by. When they reached where Laura was, ooh, that took me by surprise. They're here. <laughs> I didn't I didn't get that they were on their way to Laura. I thought our heroes were safely tucked away. I guess Lizzie has run away with her hands between her ears, her eyes closed, not wanting to do this peep at the goblins, but Laura has stayed and watched, and now the goblins are here. Come by, come by. B-U-Y, by the way. Come buy this. Buy this from us. Buy our fruits. That's what they're saying. Okay. When they reached where Laura was, they stood stock still upon the moss, leering at each other. Brother with queer brother. Signaling each other. Brother with sly brother. Oh, man. Christina Rossetti. She just does whatever the hell she wants, doesn't she? Look at that rhyme scheme. A-B-A-B, except it's A-A-A-A. She rhymes other with brother, and then she rhymes other with brother again. (laughs) Leering at each other, brother with queer brother. Signaling each other, brother with sly brother. What stands out when you do rhyme schemes like that? Other brother, other brother. Well, it's the word before that then, isn't it? Queer brother, sly brother. Isn't that what jumps out? Leering at each other, brother with queer brother. Signaling each other, brother with sly brother. Mm. I don't know what's scarier. That they're strange? That's how we read queer when we see it. In the 19th century, doesn't have the, the, the gay connotation we give it. Brother with strange brother. Scarier that they're strange or that they're sly. Hmm. I'd, I'd say sly is scarier to me. Okay, back to the poem. One set his basket down. One reared his plate. One began to weave a crown of tendrils, leaves, and rough nuts brown. Men sell not such in any town. One heaved the golden weight of dish and fruit to offer her. Come by, come by, was still their cry. Laura stared but did not stir. Longed but had no money. 
The whisk-tailed merchant bade her taste in tones as smooth as honey. The cat-faced purred, the rat-faced spoke a word of welcome, and the snail-paced even was heard. One parrot-voiced and jolly cried, Pretty goblin, still for pretty Polly. One whistled like a bird. Hmm, these voices coming at her. It's interesting that they want her to buy this. You'd think they'd be giving some of it away. But no, they want her to be invested in this. They want her to want it. And in fact, here we go, back to the poem. But sweet-toothed Laura spoke in haste. Good folk, I have no coin to take were to purloin. I have no copper in my purse. I have no silver either. And all my gold is on the first that shakes in windy weather above the rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, they answered all together. Buy from us with a golden curl. Hmm. Now, this is where it gets truly amazing. Laura jumps right in, and it's almost painful to read this. And yet, I'm not at all sure that's what the poem wants from us. I feel bad for being scared. I'm confused. I kind of want Laura to get what she wants. I'm not sure what to think. At this point, I want her to go away like Lizzie, who seems so practical and wise. Hmm. You don't know what to think, so you just listen. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red, sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man rejoicing wine, Clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone, and knew not was it night or day, as she turned home alone." What does this sound like to you? Addiction? An orgy? Is this what sex looks like to someone who's never had it? Who wants to have it? Who is terrified of it? Fascinated by it? Feeling the yearning of it? My God, what the hell is this? <laughs> and where the hell was Lizzie all this time when Laura was sucking and sucking and sucking until her lips were sore? Here we go. Lizzie met her at the gate, full of wise upbraidings. Dear, you should not stay so late. Twilight is not good for maidens. Should not loiter in the glen in the haunts of goblin men. Do you not remember Jeanie? Oh, boy. Jeanie. There's a Jeanie. J-E-A-N-I-E. -E. What happened to Jeanie? Well, Lizzie's going to tell us. How she... she let me back up. Do you not remember Jeanie? How she met them in the moonlight, took their gifts, both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours. But ever in the noonlight, she pined and pined away, sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew gray, then fell with the first snow, while to this day, no grass will grow where she lies low, 
I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. You should not loiter so. That rhyme scheme again. Christina Rossetti, she just gets on a roll, doesn't she? And just one more thing, and one more thing, and here's one more. This will rhyme too. We'll hear about some critics who got this all wrong. Who did not, who thought she was making mistakes. You would have to be a moron to think this is just someone who couldn't count right or couldn't keep track of her rhymes or somehow was just blowing it, making mistakes. But for every genius, there is some highly intelligent moron there to blow it. Okay. Substance-wise in the poem, I'm still confused. There's some addiction. We see Jeannie, who seems to have had a terrible experience with this. But what is the addiction here? Opium makes the most sense, right? You'll feel good, but you'll want more and more. You'll get hooked. Sex. That's also possible. If a bit more wild, it's a bit more of a stretch. It's something. Maybe we just need to accept that it's just goblin fruit. Doesn't have to be an analogy to some particular thing, right? It can just stand for bad things, things that are bad for us in general that we can't resist. Okay, back to the poem. Nay, hush, said Laura. Nay, hush, my sister. I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more. And kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I'll bring you plums tomorrow, fresh on their mother twigs, cherries worth getting. You cannot think what figs my teeth have met in, what melons icy cold piled on a dish of gold, too huge for me to hold, what peaches with a velvet nap, pellucid grapes without one seed, odorous indeed must be the mead whereon they grow, and pure the wave they drink with lilies at the brink, and sugar-sweet their sap. Ah, oh, I kind of want this stuff now. I want what she wants. Laura is in deep. She wants to get Lizzie hooked too, and I'm in deep too. This stuff sounds great. I kind of hope that Lizzie wants it too, and yet, of course, I'm terrified of it, and I'm terrified we're going to see something Horrible happened to Laura, who is in the grip of something that feels supernatural and out of our control. Let's take our final break and see what happens to these two at this goblin market. are back. Lizzie, who's wise and more cautious, says to Laura, don't you remember Jeannie? She wanted this so bad, she died from wanting this stuff. Couldn't get more and died. We planted flowers. And Laura says, who cares? I'm getting more. She kisses Lizzie just like an out-of-control addict. She says, there, there, things will be all right, and I'll get you some too. You'll love it. Trust me. 
Sounds just like an addict. Oh, I hate stories of addiction, but I can't stop reading. Laura is headed back to Goblin Market, and we are back in the poem. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast, locked together in one nest. Hmm. It's quite a vivid passage. Are they in love? Well, yes, they're sisters, but there seems to be some suggestions of passion here, too. Lots of people who have read this will say it's sisterly love, it's an intense friendship they have, a connection, but it's kind of erotic, too. Cheek to cheek and breast to breast, locked together in a curtained bed. Is this supposed to be incest? What are we supposed to take from this? Here's a weird word. Two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. That's what they look like. Wands of ivory tipped with gold. Ivory, because of their white skin, presumably. Tipped with gold, their blonde hair. Wands of ivory tipped with gold, these finery, this jewel-like object for awful kings. Why awful? Does that mean full of awe or awful as we might think of it? Bad, evil, terrible. If this is the first time you're reading this, do you have any idea what's going to happen? Where is this poem headed? I don't know where I am. I have no idea what's happening, what's going to happen, and yet it's so compelling. I can't stop watching this scene, and I'm not sure why. Here we go. Early in the morning, when the first cock crowed his warning, neat like bees, as sweet and busy, Laura rose with Lizzie, fetched in honey, milked the cows, aired and set to rights the house, kneaded cakes of whitest wheat, cakes for dainty mouths to eat, Next churned butter, whipped up cream, fed their poultry, sat and sewed, talked as modest maidens should. Okay, this is good, a nice morning scene, everything is good in life, maybe the goblins are gone, maybe this was some kind of nightmare that's disappeared, maybe this is all in the past, except, oh, we know what's coming, don't we? Talked as modest maidens should. Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream. Oh, no. (laughs) Laura's going through the motions. She's still hooked, even now in the morning. Talked as modest maidens should, Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream. One content, one sick in part. One warbling for the mere bright day's delight. One longing for the night. Oh, dear God. Oh, I want the warble. I'm with Lizzie again. I don't want Laura to be in an absent dream. I want the warble with the mere bright day's delight. 
Why mere? Why is why can't that be everything? And one longing for the night, that's why, because we are hooked on sin. We're all Laura's. We're hooked on whatever's bad for us, what's addictive and destructive, on sex or drugs or bad men or women or whatever is out there that's evil. Evil, wintry queens, danger, smooth-talking serpents, brothels, promising fun, piles of cocaine, opium dens, bright, loud casinos, whatever it is. We long for the night. At length, this is back to the poem, at length a slow evening came. Slow evening. Slow evening. This is how an addict waits through the day. An addict who longs for the night. Slow evening. What a great word. Christina Rossetti, you are kind of tearing me apart with this. You're like a... Well, actually... Let me tell one Christina Rossetti. Actually, let me tell two Christina Rossetti stories at this point. The first one is that a man proposed to Christina Rossetti, and she said, my dear, no, you're Catholic, Roman Catholic. That's not going to work. Dante actually pointed it out to him, said, my sister is not going to accept a proposal from someone who is a Roman Catholic. She is high Anglican. Well, the man said, fine, I'll be Anglican. Does that work for you? And Christina Rossetti said, yes. And then he said, I can't do it. I'm too Catholic. And she said, well, then I can't do it. I'm too Anglican. No go. The second suitor was no good. She loved him quite a bit, but he was a free thinker, which did not work for her as Christian as she was. And the third suitor was a painter named John Brett, and she wrote a poem called, imagine proposing to someone. Imagine being the suitor, Mr. Brett. Imagine proposing to this person, this poet, and then opening her book and seeing that she called a poem, No, Thank You, John, (laughs) with the lines, I never said I loved you, John. Why will you tease me day by day? That's the first story. Those are her three nutshell. That's a nutshell version of her three potential suitors. She never married. If anything, her religious piety kept getting in the way. And she does have this reputation of being kind of reserved, kind of buttoned up, kind of withholding, a proper Victorian. But when she was older, this is the second story. When she, she, when she was young, she was fiery, a storm, her father called her. And when she was older, she said this to her passionate niece. Once, when her niece was Going through a moment of passion, Christina, who was older now, said to her, quote, You must not imagine, my dear girl, that your aunt was always the calm and sedate person you now behold. I, too, had a very passionate temper, but I learnt to control it. On one occasion, being rebuked by my dear mother for some fault, I seized upon a pair of scissors and ripped up my arm to vent my wrath. I have learned since to control my feelings, and no doubt you will. End quote. This is who we have writing Goblin Market, so devoted to God and religion that she'll forego love and marriage and burning with a fever that can sometimes rage out of control, forcing her into recklessness, which she forever tries to control. Keep that in mind as we return to the poem with Lizzie and Laura. We've got a bit of Lizzie inside Christina. We've got a bit of Laura in there, too. Back to the poem. 
At length slow evening came. They went with pitchers to the reedy brook. Lizzie most placid in her look, Laura most like a leaping flame. <laughs> I laughed out loud at this. These are four lines. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Have you ever been with an addict? Have you ever been with someone who's out of control, who's doing something that's dangerous and reckless? You know it's bad for them, and you can't stop them. At length, slow evening came. They went with pitchers to the reedy brook. Lizzie, most placid in her look. Laura, most like a leaping flame. Here she goes. Goodbye, Laura. I feel like she's already a goner. Back to the poem. They drew the gurgling water from its deep. Lizzie plucked purple and rich golden flags. Then turning homeward said, The sunset flushes those furthest loftiest crags. Come, Laura, not another maiden lags. No willful squirrel wags. The beasts and birds are fast asleep. But Laura loitered still among the rushes and said the bank was steep and said the hour was early still, the dew not fallen, the wind not chill, listening ever, but not catching the customary cry, come by, come by, with its iterated jingle of sugar-baited words, not for all her watching, once discerning even one goblin, racing, whisking, tumbling, hobbling, let alone the herds that used to tramp along the glen in groups or single, of brisk fruit merchant men. Oh, this is sad. It's like those addicts who try to scrape cocaine off the floor. You feel their pain, their need, even though you're glad they're not getting it. You still kind of want it for them. You want them not to want it so much. That's Laura. She doesn't hear it. She doesn't hear these goblins. She desperately wants it. Till Lizzie urged, Oh, Laura, come, I hear the fruit call, but I dare not look. You should not loiter longer at this brook. Come with me home. The stars rise, the moon bends her arc. Each glowworm winks her spark. Let us get home before the night grows dark. For clouds may gather, though this is summer weather. Put out the lights and drench us through. Then if we lost our way, what should we do? Lizzie is practical. She says, I hear the fruit call. Did you catch that? Lizzie heard it. But she's strong enough to resist. She dares not look. It's getting dark, she says. The glowworms are winking. The moon's arc is bending. It's a beautiful scene. By this brook, Christina Rossetti is very good at setting a scene in just a few words. Like one of those art directors who can make magic in the theater with just a few props and some lighting, transporting us immediately into another world. Lizzie heard the fruit call. That's a big deal. Laura turned cold as stone to find her sister heard that cry alone, that goblin cry, come buy our fruits, come buy. Must she then buy no more such dainty fruit? Must she no more such succus pasture find? Gone deaf and blind. Succus. S-U-C-C-O-U-S. That's a word we don't use much. It means juicy. What a word to use here. There's dainty fruit and succus 
pasture. It's like the eye wants one thing, dainty, unthreatening, pristine, beautiful, but the mouth wants something else altogether. If the fruit was not dainty, but big, juicy, messy, well, that wouldn't appeal to the eye, would it? It would look kind of disgusting, like it was spoiled. But once you put that fruit in your mouth, you don't want it to be dainty. You want it to burst with juice and flavor. You want it like an animal wants it. You want it to feel good in your mouth. And wet. Again, this could be the world of drugs. That pert little pill, that clean white powder on a gleaming mirror, that sharp and shiny needle, whatever the mechanism, it appeals to the eye. But then the feeling appeals to the body and the blood. Sex, too. That beautiful or handsome package on the outside, well-dressed, rich, elegant, smooth, maybe not rich and elegant, maybe trim, well-groomed, put together, clean. And then, so you want that, your eye wants that, but then your body, it's going to all come apart, isn't it? In a wild, sweaty frenzy, dainty fruit, a succus pasture. Laura doesn't get it. She doesn't. She, she didn't hear the call. She doesn't get what she wants. Back to the poem. Her tree of life drooped from the root. She said not one word in her heart's sore ache, but peering through the dimness, not discerning, trudged home, her pitcher dripping all the way. So crept to bed and lay silent, till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for balked desire and wept as if her heart would break. Now, Goblin Market is kind of like a children's poem, and it was marketed as such at various times in the past hundred and more than a hundred years. Rossetti also wrote children's poems, and you can kind of see how Parts of this would feel like it is one, too. Halloween monsters, goblins, maybe a moral to the story, temptation, fruit. It feels like a children's poem, but my goodness, read this poem. How could you give this to a child? Trudged home, her pitcher dripping all the way. Maybe this is pre-Freud, so it didn't leap out at Rossetti's editors and readers, but it's hard not to read that. Well, you know what I'm saying here. Rossetti herself, for what it's worth, always insisted that Goblin Market was not a children's poem, not for children. Hmm. I don't think I need to be explicit about what's being conjured up here. And then Laura crept to bed waiting for Lizzie, that killjoy, to fall asleep. I'll just be silent here until I can tell that Lizzie is asleep and then sat up in passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for Bach desire. Ugh. And then wept as if her heart would break. She's so hooked. She's like a monster. She's not human anymore. She's given herself over to this fruit. Oh, we never saw Eve like this. You have to look at modern day renditions of drug addicts to see someone going through these kind of spasms. Back to the poem. 
Day after day, night after night, Laura kept watch in vain, in sullen silence of exceeding pain. She never caught again the goblin cry, Come by, come by. She never spied the goblin men hawking their fruits along the glen, but when the noon waxed bright, her hair grew thin and gray. She dwindled as the fair full moon doth turn to swift decay and burn her fire away. Her addiction, her unfulfilled addiction is basically robbing her of life. Oh my God, if you could eat that stuff, that fruit, would you? Lots of people would. Lots of people would. They know the risks. They know the odds, and yet they still smoke cigarettes. They still gamble. They still have unprotected sex with strangers in dangerous places. They still go diving into opium dens. They usually regret it afterwards, or they regret it for a little while, and then they go back for more. This is what happens when you go for broke. And when you go broke, Laura does not have anything left except her memory of what she wants, her aching desire, that bitter and inescapable ache, that yearning that makes her gnash her teeth. That's all she has left, except she does have one thing, a little seed that Ms. Rossetti planted at the beginning when we were busy looking at other things. Here's something we barely noticed, but it was there. One day, remembering her Colonel Stone, this is in Laura's point of view, remembering her Colonel Stone, she set it by a wall that faced the south, dewed it with tears, hoping for a root, watched for a waxing shoot. But there came none. It never saw the sun. It never felt the trickling moisture run. While with sunk eyes and faded mouth, she dreamed of melons as a traveler sees false waves in desert drought. With shade of leaf-crowned trees and burns the thirstier in the sandful breeze. She no more swept the house, tended the fowls or cows, fetched honey, kneaded cakes of wheat, brought water from the brook, but sat down listless in the chimney nook and would not eat. How pathetic. She has a stone that she's hoping will grow into goblin fruit. She waters it with her tears. She sees fruit in her visions like a mirage, like a fake oasis in a desert. She sees those melons, but nothing. They're not real. She can't enjoy real life either because it's not as good as the one that she sampled that night. Where's Lizzie? In all this, well, here she is. Tender Lizzie could not bear to watch her sister's cankerous care, yet not to share. She night and morning caught the goblins cry, Come buy our orchard fruits, come buy, come buy. Beside the brook along the glen she heard the tramp of goblin men, the yoke and stir poor Laura could not hear. Longed to buy fruit to comfort her, but feared to pay too dear. She thought of Jeanie in her grave, who should have been a bride, but who, for joys brides hoped to have, fell sick and died in her gay prime, in earliest winter time, with the first glazing rhyme, with the first snowfall of crisp winter time. Okay, 
that rhyme scheme again. Prime time, rhyme time. And just one more, and one more, and one more. But the real news here is, A, Lizzie still hears these cries. Why is that? Why can she hear them and Laura can't? Is it because she's the one who hasn't given yet? She's the virgin, so to speak, of whatever it is they want from her. They want to spoil virgins, maybe. Virgins in the sense of those who have not sampled their fruit. They want a fallen woman. Laura's a fallen woman, and they've disappeared. They don't need her anymore. They want to make people fall. They just want that fall. They want to destroy, and then they disappear, leaving the women like Jeannie to die. Jeannie who died, and Laura who is dying. And look at this clue. Here's the strongest evidence that we're talking about sex here, or premarital sex. This is the line that everyone cites when they're trying to make this argument. Jeannie, quote, who should have been a bride, but who for joys brides hope to have fell sick and died. End quote. Okay. The joys brides hope to have, that's physical love, right? Sex, we would say now. And Jeannie grabbed it early, too early, and then died. Can you read this as not being about sex and losing one's virginity? It's so strong as a metaphor that it's hard to see what it even actually would be. The figurative interpretation overpowers the literal one. What would this be? How, why would brides be in here if we were just talking about the goblin fruit? Brides hope to have what? The goblin fruit? Or is it just the idea of getting what you want? Some readings of this, citing this passage and a few others, is that it's about lesbian love, forbidden love. That sort of fits here, too. She wanted the joys brides hoped to have, so she seized an opportunity, maybe like a woman seizing them with another woman outside of marriage something forbidden, and then she was spoiled, ruined. She no longer had a place in Victorian society. She couldn't get married now because she knew there was something better out there, something that appealed to her more, the pleasures of sex with women. And so she would wither away as Laura is on her way to doing a spinster in the language of the time. All this is in the, in the era, the views of their era. It doesn't really comport with our view today. But you can see how it would fit with Rossetti's time. If this is what Rossetti's talking about, it's still not clear to me. There's a lot here that doesn't really fit with this interpretation, too. Okay, let's go back to the poem. We got to find out what happens. Do you know? Can you guess? <laughs> I can't. And I've read this before. <laughs> Multiple times. Recently. Okay, back to the poem. Here we go. If my voice sounds different, it's because I had to pause to get some breakfast and I included some juicy blackberries on my cereal. Okay, here we go. Back to the poem. Till Laura dwindling seemed knocking at death's door, then Lizzie weighed no more, better and worse, but put a silver penny in her purse, kissed Laura, crossed the heath with clumps of furs, at twilight, halted by the brook, and for the first time in her life, began to listen and look. Mm. That's interesting. Listening only, you can resist, or at least Lizzie can. Come by, come by, that's all they ever say. That's huckster talk, right? 
the fruit doesn't talk, but looking, looking at the goblins, looking at the fruit, that's what hooks you. Ignore this seedy-looking man with the brown teeth and the patchy scalp. Look at the gleaming needle. Or ignore this hideous parking lot in this old lobby with the vomit-colored carpet. Inside is a bright and shiny casino with deep green felt and colorful poker chips just waiting for you. Lizzie, Lizzie, wanting to help Laura. What's she going to do? She kisses Laura, who's half dead. Lizzie's got to do something, right? Sacrifice herself, maybe? Heads out with a silver penny? Lizzie, oh no. Lizzie, please, here we go. Laughed every goblin when they spied her peeping, came towards her, hobbling, flying, running, leaping, puffing and blowing, chuckling, clapping, crowing, clucking and gobbling, mopping and mowing, full of airs and graces, pulling wry faces, demure grimaces, cat-like and rat-like, rattle and wombat-like, snail-paced in a hurry, parrot-voiced and whistler, helter-skelter, hurry-scurry, chattering like magpies, fluttering like pigeons, gliding like fishes. After that word, fishes, there's a dash. We pause for breath. That's quite a flurry of activity. These goblins are hella active. Loud, noisy, laughing, swarming. They want something. They're excited. They laugh when they see her. Lizzie, the good one. They've seen her every day, but this time is different. This time, she's brought money. And this time, she's peeping. This time, she wants to want. She's willing. This is the churchgoer who wants to be bad. Oh, I can tell you this. I knew a woman once, a gorgeous woman. Everyone was in love with her. She was sweet and pure. And one night, she wanted to be bad. And she sought out a bad man, a wild man, someone who was known for being kind of living on the edge, a rebel. And she demanded something from that man. She demanded it from him, and he was sort of shocked. And the story got around, and I am much more mature now in the ways of the world, but that story still gets me. Whatever was in her that needed to come out, something in her snapped. For just that one night, she wanted something. She wanted it, and she demanded it. That's Lizzie. She's on the verge of this, too. Only there's something noble about what she's doing. She's doing it for Laura. She's doing it to try to save someone else. Let's hear what happens. We'll back up a few lines so we can get the full effect. Helter, skelter, hurry, scurry, chattering like magpies, fluttering like pigeons, gliding like fishes. Hugged her and kissed her, squeezed and caressed her, stretched up their dishes, panniers and plates. Look at our apples, russet and done, bob at our cherries, bite at our peaches, citrons and dates. Grapes for the asking, pears red with basking out in the sun. Plums on their twigs, pluck them and suck them. Pomegranates, figs. Good folk, said Lizzie, mindful of Jeanie. Give me much and many. Held out her apron, tossed them her penny. Oh, look at that. She just wants to buy. She doesn't want to eat. She says, I'll pay you. I'm taking them to someone else. 
I'm here to buy opium for my friend who is suffering without it. Tried to quit cold turkey or was forced to quit cold turkey. But I can tell she's dying from not having it. Will they sell it to her? If she doesn't want to eat it, if she won't taste the fruit, will they sell it to her to give to someone else? Let's see. Back to the poem. Nay, take a seat with us. Honor and eat with us, they answered, grinning. Our feast is but beginning. Night yet is early, warm and dew-pearly. Wakeful and starry, such fruits as these no man can carry. Half their bloom would fly, half their dew would dry, half their flavor would pass by. Sit down and feast with us, be welcome guest with us, cheer you and rest with us. Thank you, said Lizzie, but one waits at home alone for me. So without further parleying, if you will not sell me any of your fruits, though much and many, give me back my silver penny. I tossed you for a fee. They began to scratch their pates, no longer wagging, purring, but visibly demurring, grunting and snarling. One called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud. Their looks were evil. Lashing their tails, they trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking twitched her hair out by the roots, stamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. Oh, again, this poem is something you could give to a child. It's got the sing-song tones of a nursery rhyme almost, but oh, don't do it. Or when the child grows up, he or she will probably say, my God, how could you have given me this poem? It's so violent. What do they want from her, these goblins? They don't want to give the fruit away. They want to be there when it's eaten. They want to see someone giving themselves over to the fruit, succumbing to the succusness. What will Lizzie do? She's now being assaulted. She fight back, resist. How does she help Laura? How does she escape? Here we go. White and golden, Lizzie stood, like a lily in a flood, like a rock of blue-veined stone lashed by tides obstreperously, like a beacon left alone in a hoary, roaring sea, sending up a golden fire, like a fruit-crowned orange tree, white with blossoms honey-sweet, sore beset by wasp and bee, like a royal virgin town topped with gilded dome and spire, Close beleaguered by a fleet, mad to tug her standard down. Here's where I think Christina Rossetti had to see that this was about sex, right? That had to have been the intention. Lesbian love, maybe, but love of some kind. Sex, virginity. This is a royal virgin town with a fleet around. All around Lizzie trying to tug her standard down, take her virginity, deflower her. These are all outdated concepts, sort of. They're not as outdated as we'd like to think, maybe. The history of this is thousands of years old. What will Lizzie do? Back to the poem. One may lead a horse to water. Twenty cannot make him drink. Though the goblins cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her, pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, 
mauled and mocked her. Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip, lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck, which quaked like curd. Okay. Uh, this part has been compared to sex. Not to be too explicit here, I think you can maybe get the picture. They're in a frenzy. It's violent. This is not a pleasant scene. It's not consensual at all. This is sexual violence. Goblin violence, but the analogy here to sex is very strong. She keeps her lips shut tight, and instead she winds up with juice on her face, lodging in her chin, streaking her neck. I think you know what this juice could represent, right? Her neck is streaked. It quakes like curd. My goodness. Christina Rossetti does whatever the hell she wants and doesn't look back. Here we go. At last, the evil people, worn out by her resistance, flung back her penny, kicked their fruit along whichever road they took, not leaving root or stone or shoot. Some writhed into the ground, some dived into the brook with ring and ripple, some scudded on the gale without a sound, some vanished in the distance. In a smart, ache, tingle, Lizzie went her way, knew not was it night or day, sprang up the bank, tore through the firs, threaded cups and dingle, and heard her penny jingle bouncing in her purse. Its bounce was music to her ear. She ran and ran as if she feared some goblin man dogged her with jibe or curse or something worse. But not one goblin scurried after, nor was she pricked by fear. The kind heart made her windy paste that urged her home quite out of breath with haste and inward laughter. She is surviving. What she's been through is awful. It's hard not to see this as something like rape. In fairness to Rossetti, it's not, it's someone resisting goblins who want her to eat fruit, but the language and imagery here is so strongly suggestive, it feels like she has survived something very violent, something intrusive. Feels like she's a survivor of sexual violence. Back to the poem. She cried, Laura! up the garden. Did you miss me? Come and kiss me. Never mind my bruises. Hug me. Kiss me. Suck my juices. Squeezed from goblin fruits for you. Goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me. Drink me. Love me. Laura, make much of me. For your sake I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchant men. Wow. That was not a turn I expected from Christina Rossetti, or from anyone, for that matter. You want this so much, Laura, this fruit and this semen-like juice? Well, it's all over me. Come and kiss me and drink me up. You want sin? I'm stained with it. Come and clean me with your tongue and take all you want. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden, your young life like mine be wasted, undone in mine undoing, and ruined in my ruin, thirsty, cankered, goblin-ridden? She clung about her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her, 
tears once again refreshed her shrunken eyes, dropping like rain after a long, sultry drought. Shaking with aguish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth. Mm. This is so explicit, you almost wonder if Rossetti didn't see it. That's one theory I have. Maybe she was pulling in the sexual metaphors without being fully aware of just how overpowering they would be. Look at Laura here. She feels bad for about a millisecond, and then she goes for the good stuff. Poor Lizzie never got to taste it. And what does it mean for Laura? By the way, we had a word in there, aguish, which is, looks like a misspelling of anguish, but it's not. It means quivering. Shaking with aguish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth. Mm. What does this mean for Laura? Her lips began to scorch. That juice was wormwood to her tongue. She loathed the feast. Writhing as one possessed, she leaped and sung, rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast. Her locks streamed like the torch borne by a racer at full speed or like the mane of horses in their flight, or like an eagle when she stems the light straight toward the sun, or like a caged thing freed, or like a flying flag when armies run. Swift fire spread through her veins, knocked at her heart, met the fire smoldering there, and overbore its lesser flame. She gorged on bitterness without a name. Ah, fool to choose such part of soul-consuming care. Sense failed in the mortal strife, like the watchtower of a town, which an earthquake shatters down, like a lightning-stricken mast, like a wind-uprooted tree spun about, like a foam-topped waterspout cast down headlong in the sea. She fell at last, pleasure passed, and anguish passed. Is it death, or is it life? What a wild response! She gorged on bitterness without a name. What is the metaphor here? It's gone. There is none. This doesn't fit with sex anymore, and it doesn't fit with drugs. We're in another realm. This goblin fruit has transcended anything known on earth. It's in Rossetti's imagination now. Something you want so badly, you die from not having it, and then you get it. And it's not what it's supposed to be. It doesn't do to you what it's supposed to do. And you gorge on it anyway, and it slays you like a watchtower falling in an earthquake or a wave that crashes into the ocean. Is it death or is it life? What a question. When you're so bereft, you think you might be dead. This wanting is so powerful. And then do we get an answer? Is this question just rhetorical? Well, we get kind of an answer. Life out of death. That night long, Lizzie watched by her, counted her pulse's flagging stir, felt for her breath, held water to her lips and cooled her face with tears and fanning leaves. But when the first birds chirped about their eaves and early reapers plodded to the place of golden sheaves and dew-wet grass, bowed in the morning winds so brisk to pass, and new buds with new day opened of cup-like lilies on the stream, Laura awoke as from a dream, laughed in the innocent old way, hugged Lizzie but not twice or thrice, her gleaming locks showed not one thread of gray. Her breath was sweet as May, and light 
danced in her eyes. Wow. A kind of rebirth. Why? Because Lizzie has sacrificed for her, or because the fruit no longer tastes so good, so the spell of addiction is broken, or maybe a bit of both? Days, weeks, months, years afterwards, when both were wives with children of their own, their mother hearts beset with fears, their lives bound up in tender lives, Laura would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime, those pleasant days long gone of not returning time, would talk about the haunted glen, the wicked, quaint, fruit merchant men, their fruits like honey to the throat, but poison in the blood. Men sell not such in any town. Would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote. Then, joining hands to little hands, would bid them cling together, for there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather to cheer one on the tedious way, to fetch one if one goes astray, to lift one if one totters down, to strengthen whilst one stands. Wow. Okay. So, a fallen woman can get married, we see, and there's a happy ending here. The power of sisterhood and sacrifice pays off. Laura tells the story of how brave her sister was, tells them to the children. They both have children here. Both are wives. Laura seems to tell Lizzie's children and her own about what happened, how brave Lizzie had been. The moral of the story, resist temptation, do what you can to help a friend, especially a sister. Resist it too. Be wary of goblin men, wicked fruit merchant men, however quaint they may seem. And remember to help each other and to trust your loved ones, your sister's especially. Wow. 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 I'm a little out of breath. What a wild journey to get to this point. I will not forget this poem. I will not forget Goblin Market. And I will not forget Christina Rossetti. We will hear more about this remarkable poem and this remarkable poet. Lizzie and Laura might be finished with the honey in the throat and the poison in the blood, but we are still peeping and those goblins are still laughing. We're hooked on Christina Rossetti, and we're coming back for more. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Oh, taking a break from Walt Whitman to experience the goblin market. My word, what a poem and what a poet. I'd like to thank Ms. Rossetti and her fearlessness for unleashing this thing on the world. It made even this old literature dude feel like a lost teenager again. I wonder if Mike has read this one. Maybe I should send it to him. If you've figured out this poem, let me know. I do think it's probably not figure outable, which is another word we don't use much anymore, maybe because I just invented it and then immediately retired it. Don't use it anymore. It's like those old aeroplanes before the Wright brothers, all bicycle with one big wheel and some flapping wings, and you go propelling off the runway and just pitch forward into the pond. That's me inventing words and then retiring them. Such a great idea, such a full head of steam. So much furious activity and wild hopes, peddling and peddling and peddling. And then, kerplunk, into the drink I go. I'll towel off and shake my head, embarrassed, but trying not to show it. 
maybe chuckling a little at myself. My knees and elbows stinging with some scrapes. Then I'll retire to my workshop and put together another one of these little dream machines. A podcast episode that I think might fly, but will probably die. Just like the word not figure outable. I'll do all that because I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>